This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, we talk with the most well-known voice in Cougar sports. He grew up in Canada, attended BYU as a freshman in 1984 of all years. That's awesome. Worked his way through the ranks and now has been calling men's basketball on the radio for the Cougars since 1996 and football since 2001. He enjoys Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Hot Rod and Rush, and probably a lot more than that. He is Greg Rubel, the voice of the Cougars. What's up, Greg? What's up, Jerem? How you doing, man? I'm very well. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about you. That's this whole show, actually. Uh, want to talk about me. <laughs> want to talk about I. Now, one of the joys of my life has been bothering you as a 16-year-old after a basketball game and you being like the nicest guy ever. No bother. And, and then we work together uh, <laughs> 21 years later, which is super cool. You've Flash been, forward. You've been yeah. amazing. Um, what, not, with, only, not only work together, yeah. I work for you. In yeah, a lot I would of ways. say for, with, with. <laughs> um, I'm not going to be producing the coach show anymore with you, which yeah. will be a thing that I'll miss. Um, but we've worked together closely the last couple of years. I've been producing the coach show behind the scenes. You hosted. That's been awesome. You've been my boss with the coach's show. I'm not yeah. your boss. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was your boss. One day, you know, never, but uh, whatever. When I was 16 and I bugged you and now we're here, this has been a fun journey. But let's talk about your journey, okay? When you were a kid, did you think, yeah, I want to move to the States and call basketball and football? Like, when did this whole thing start with you? Now, the move to the States part was never part of the equation. But there came a point, I think, uh, during my high school days where I realized that if I could talk for a living, I might like to explore that. Uh, there, there was a long time when architect was the the objective. I, wa- I was going to be an architect. What was that? I, I just really thought design and construction was fascinating, and I wanted to be a part of it. I, I just had in my mind that it would be great to, to be involved in that side of, of, uh, of a profession. And so I took drafting classes in high school, but I just it just didn't click for me. There was something missing. I struggled with too many basics and too many fundamentals to know that this would be the thing for me. Um, it was too um, – it became – too unnatural for me to, to pick up all the things I felt I would need to to be a really good architect. And so I kind of uh, – I was kind of dissuaded um, from pursuing that and, and persuaded more toward the creative uh, or the public speaking side of things. And so once I made that decision, I found myself uh, more involved in things that put me either on stage or in front of a microphone or performing in one way or another. How old um, are you at this point when you kind of figure this 12 out? 12 to 14, okay. 15, yeah. Um, so public speaking contests, uh, choir. Wait, hold on. What's a public speaking contest? Uh, there, were organi- there was an organization uh, up where I lived in Canada that um, basically um, held contests for, for young people um, to present, you know, you know, orations on whatever topic you've been assigned, and it's basically a public speaking contest. Nice. Or competitions. That's great. Um, so I, 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 I was engaged in those. Uh, got involved in choir, uh, tenor, drama, bass, baritone. I was a tenor. Nice. I still, think. I, are I, you still a tenor? I, I think I'm a solid baritone now. Nice. Yeah, I, I can still get tenor uh, uh, content, but yeah. I, more of a baritone. Nice. I mean, I can I can pretend I'm a bass sometimes. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. For the most all part, all tenors do. I yeah, can relate. Yeah, to that. yeah. So, uh, so choir. Um, it was in band for a while. Uh, what is drama? Uh, clarinet and bass clarinet. Ooh, nice. So, uh, and then in the, uh, drama theater. So I was in plays, and uh, and 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 I and there was also I was in singing competitions. Uh, in Look a, at in you. Part from choir. So you went I, after. I, it. I was just doing things that put you in a position to put yourself out there. 
uh, not really knowing exactly where I would go yet. I, I just kind of felt the more comfortable I could get in the public forum, the better. So it was all good training for me. Uh, and then there was kind of a, a side component of it that I thought was, in, in hindsight, in retrospect, was inspiring me more than I knew at the time. And that is my dad uh, was the public address announcer for the hockey team in town where I grew up, which was Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. And so he was the PA announcer for the Saskatoon Blades. And so his perch was in a press box suspended over the ice at the old Saskatoon Arena, and he had his little announcer booth. And when he'd take me to games, I'd be in the booth with him. And so the seed is planted. Yeah, because he would, you know, he had the microphone, the on-off switch, and and he hits the button, and all of a sudden his voice is reverberating out in this arena, and it got me used to the notion of the power of a microphone, how you can you can captivate an audience. And my dad had a great voice, and uh, I, I thought it was the coolest thing. My dad. You know, talk to the crowd, and they could, and 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 they were waiting for his words. A literal when, reaction and feedback. Yeah, when, when a goal was scored, uh, there's the reaction of the crowd. Then comes the announcement from my dad. You know, goal scored by so and so, assist to so and so, and then the crowd reacts again. Um, and you know, typical announcements and the drive home safely, and everything was just my dad talking to the crowd and and controlling the crowd with uh, the microphone in a way. I was really kind of fascinated by that, the power of a microphone. And so as as I got, you know, 12, 13, 14, began thinking more about career and what interested me while I I, I was putting myself in performing spaces. I loved all sports. I loved reading about sports. I loved the stats of sports, the trivia. I was, and I loved listening and watching uh, listening to and watching sports. Um, you know, in, in Canada, Saturday nights were all about uh, hockey night in Canada. Well, back it up a little bit. At 6 Isn't o'clock. every night hockey night in Canada? But Saturday night, when you have three channels or two <laughs> channels, really, CBC and CTV, yeah. you know, Saturday night with such so few offerings, it was hockey night in Canada. Saturday night on CBC. So 6 o'clock was hockey night in Canada, but at 5 o'clock, curling came on. And so it now was we're al- talking. Yeah, it was always five o'clock curling, six o'clock hockey. And and when the hockey would come on, you're talking about the broadcasting duo of, of Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin. And and they ran Hockey Night in Canada for, you know, twenty, thirty years as the as the broadcast duo. So those are the voices I listened to. So I had weekly routines and Don Chevrier was the voice of curling. And so I had these weekly routines that were focused on broadcasters coming into my home and and, and being with them every week. And and when once we got American Cable in Canada, now you're talking about the NBC Baseball Game of the Week, and now it's Joe Garajol and it's Bob Costas, and these things are kind of just still building with you. And so I became really accustomed to the routine focused on broadcasts and broadcasters. And so all this kind of comes together and jumbles in, and I realize, man, I love sports, and man, I love trivia, man, I love numbers, and gosh, I'm really fascinated by broadcasters and broadcasting, and all that kind of galvanized and... And I found myself, you know, arranging tours of radio stations and TV stations and writing letters to broadcasters and just kind of now letting it all percolate to, you know, how can I do what they do? And then we kind of went from there. Okay. Follow-up questions. What plays were you in? Uh, well, I mean, the one I, the one I had the most fun in, with and still kept a program from was uh, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, I was Gilbert. Nice. I was Anne of. I was Gilbert Blythe. You were Anne. I, no, I was not Anne. <laughs> I was. I was. I was Anne's love interest. I was Gilbert Blythe in, uh, nice. in Anne of Green Gables. So as as a senior in high school, that was that was kind of the pinnacle for me. Was was getting into that. You mentioned your dad as a PA, and that's a real big one. Where it's like, okay, you could combine those two things in some way, right? You figure that out. That's awesome. Yeah. You've done some public address announcing, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. No, it came around full circle. So uh, when I was working at KSL back in my early days, uh, I I became a non paid intern. 
uh, for Mark Kelly at the Salt Lake Golden Eagles. I would just kind of, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd finish my shift and I'd run over to the Salt Palace and run stats and do whatever he needed. So I kind of hung around for a season uh, back in 1990, 91, somewhere around there. I'd just gotten married, just wanting to do anything. I was working at KSL, which was great, but I loved hockey and the hockey team was there. And Mark Kelly with the Golden Eagles was just awesome to me and, and kept me around and got, kept me busy. And then Mike Runge, who was a Fox 13 anchor at the time, kind of a, you know, for those a little more old school, Mike was like a big name in local sports along with PJ and guys like that. And Mike Runge. Well, James, for those who know. Right, right. Uh, and we'll talk more about him. But yeah. uh, Mike Runge was also doing PA for the Golden Eagles at the time. He got busy with Fox 13, had to quit the Golden Eagles PA job. And even though I was young and didn't have a lot of developed <laughs> talents yet, Mark Kelly said, well, I got this kid here. He'll work cheap. And and his and he likes this kind of thing. His dad was a PA announcer, so we're going to wants to do this. We're going to take this full circle. So I yeah. got to actually for the for a few seasons be the uh, uh, public address Wait, announcer. A few seasons, yeah. Whoa, it was it was a That's couple three awesome. four seasons. Yeah, uh, I was for the Salt Lake Golden Eagles back when we were playing at the uh, at the Delta back then the Delta Center. Is that at uh, the now, top but, of your LinkedIn or where is that? <laughs> it doesn't exist on my LinkedIn. Uh, do I even have? Do a you LinkedIn? even have a LinkedIn? Yeah, uh, so I don't I, think you need I have, one. I, have, I haven't been job searching for a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so the public address thing. Uh, this is right as they moved from the Salt Palace to the new Delta Center. So I got to be in the new building. And, hey, I, I got to wear the uh, the red IHL sweater. I was an official IHL-like personnel type guy. So I was uh, – and, and, and our, our, it's great because the announcing booth was actually at ice level between the two penalty boxes. Oh, you weren't up high. No. So I was actually down between the two penalty boxes in the Delta Center back in the day, the Delta Center. And so that was the best thing, too, was announcing but from ice level where you get a totally different yes. feel for the game when you're that close. And then the great thing is, too – when you get guys that come in who just had a scrap, you know, um, two guys that come in and each got five for fighting, you get to be a part uh, or be between their conversations <laughs> when they come in the box. And that's the other great thing about it. Sometimes they'd still be pretty upset with each other. Yeah. And, you, and you'd have to, you know, kind of be aware of what's flying what, you know, what direction. But a lot of times, as it is with hockey, these guys are just doing their jobs. They respect each other. They get in and they kind of, you know, it's like it's small talk at that point in the penalty box between the two fighters. How's Mary? She's great. Either, How's either way, it was a ton of fun seeing guys that were on their way up to the <laughs> NHL or had been in the league for a while and coming back down and, and, and still, uh, you know, cashing a check. So there were a lot of great names and a lot of great experiences just being a PA announcer for the Salt Lake Golden Eagles. And I'm really, I don't talk a lot of, enough about Mark Kelly, but Mark Kelly. Uh, was a big part of of my early career that way, just getting me in the booth and getting me involved with a team. Uh, and there was a time when I tried to, um, when I thought about leaving broadcasting for a job with the team. Um, I actually didn't get it. Uh, and and this is when uh, the Golden Eagles, I think it was close to their transition time to becoming the Grizzlies, but they were still the Golden Eagles at the time, as I recall. And I actually... Um, applied for a job, would have been a step up from PA, obviously, and didn't get it. So I stayed where I was. Which job? Uh, it, it was a, a, a public relations job, I think, with the, with the team. And then within a couple seasons, the team was gone. And so, you know, blessing in disguise kind of thing, but I didn't get that job. Um, and this is, again, early in my career. I, I was still feeling my way as a broadcaster. I wasn't yet in sports. I was doing a lot more news. At KSL. At KSL. Because my first sports gig, I, KSL hired me in 89. I didn't end up on 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 the football crew as the sideline guy till 92. So for the first two, three years, I was working news. And and that's another, you know, lesson that I share with, with, with people that want to know about it is that, you know, don't 
hold out for your dream job. It might not be readily available. Do the job that you're given and do the best at it. The old act, you know, whatever thou art, whatever thou art, act well thy part. That mm-hmm. kind of served me well. Because I was, I was working news for two, three years before I actually got my first sports opportunity at KSL. But it was during those early years when I was really itching for something in sports. And mm-hmm. so it was the hockey gig I tried for. I actually tried for a job at BYU in public relations. I didn't get that. I still have the rejection letter from Val Hale in my desk. <laughs> Uh, I didn't get that one either. So there were a couple opportunities that I was pursuing because I wanted sports so badly, right? And I I, I tried to get involved with the team. I tried to get involved with BYU. I wasn't qualified enough yet for either. So it kept me where I was. But by staying where I was, ultimately the door opened to get me into the sports side of things and the BYU side of things at KSL and the rest is history. Man, that's wild. Okay, this is why we do this show. Uh, so we can learn things about you. I didn't know a, lo- a ton of this. I love this. I love, That's why I'm here, Jeremy. I love being able to chat uh, <laughs> about these things. Okay, you mentioned you love sports growing up. Obviously, you love hockey. You like curling. What else do you like at this point? I mean, the curling thing, I don't see a lot of it nowadays, but it was, I mean, my dad was a curler, okay? My he dad. Was a cur- what do you mean he was a curler? He played he was on a recreationally? Team. He was on a team. Yeah, he was on a recreational team. Okay. Uh, a rink of guys, and they competed. They He would leave town on the weekends with his boys. and oh, they and, and, and they like would traveling. They would drive to other cities and compete in what are called bonspiels. A curling tournament's called a bonspiel. A bonspiel. A bonspiel. We're B-O-N-S-P-I-E-L, bonspiel. bonspiel. Oh, don't ask so me to spell it. They would go compete in bonspiels. All right? They'd play a weekend of curling. and There would if, be glockenspiels at the bonspiels. Can't speak to that. But uh, at, at the bonspiel, you compete. You go in the tournament. If you're any good, you win stuff. You come home with prizes. Sometimes you win cash. But you, but we had we had so many appliances in our house that were a result of my dad's bonspiel winnings. Why do you we come, have three come, ovens? come home with a toaster. Uh, come home with a with a record player. Uh, th- th- these were the prize. You you get money or you get prizes at these things. And so, did you my, have your own record player then growing up? We did have a, a phonograph. Yeah, we knew we had a record player. No, we did. Uh, no, and and in fact, just if we flash forward, uh, my daughter for her most recent uh, birthday. Uh, gave her a record player and some vinyl. Look at you. Because kids today, they, 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 they don't know no about the vinyl. What so, vinyl did you give her? Uh, she was, I gave her five Beatles albums. Look at you. She's been big into the Beatles. And so yeah. I started off with kind of five of the what I think are the best Beatles albums. And so she has – anyway, long story short, that takes us forward. That's but, amazing. But yeah, no, we had a record player. And, and, uh, and one of the albums I gave my daughter – uh, a couple months ago for his 16th birthday was the first album I recall listening to as a kid, which was Revolver from the Beatles. Mm-hmm. My, my parents had that, along with a ton of other stuff. But yeah, record players were big. Um, but a lot of the stuff, my point is, a lot of stuff we had in our house were, were things my dad actually won as a curler. And so our house was full of curling brooms and shoe covers and heavy sweaters and patches from tournaments. And so curling was and, – and on Saturdays when they were home, I would go with my dad to the rink. And, you know, it's smoke and it's beer and it's just this this vibe of of, you know, uh, the curlers at the time, how they lived their lives. And it was just a a, a great wild place to be. You know, they'd, they'd stay, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd put the kids in the cafe area with the with the wives and the moms and everyone else. And, and the guys would be out on the rink curling and we'd watch through the windows. And so I spent so many Saturdays as a kid in the wintertime at the curling rink watching my dad do his thing. And so curling was big, and of course I loved watching it. And in fact, it was a class I took in high school. Uh, I had a curling class in high school awesome. as part of PE, which is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> so that, and of course hockey, I played it. You know, you, everyone plays, right? And I played every winter until I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, and became not as good as I needed to be to stay highly competitive. But I loved playing. 
and of course watching hockey. And so curling and hockey were big, but I had interest in baseball. I played Little League Baseball. American Baseball was big. And then the Blue Jays and Expos were the huge part of my life because those were Canada's teams at that point. Mm-hmm. And so baseball was big. I never really got into American football or basketball until I, you know, really, you know, came, I, we'd watch NBA, but, you know, you never, back in the early 80s, you weren't getting live NBA. So those are things that I came into later. But uh, but hockey and baseball were, were big for me. And, of course, Canadian football. Uh, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, where I grew up, were my team until we moved to Calgary. Then the Calgary Stampeders were my team, and we had tickets. And so I loved CFL and, and you know, much later to American football uh, than Canadian, obviously. So obviously you're growing up in Canada. You come to the uh, United States later. What, how is how is Canada – how does Canada still sort of resonate in who you are and what you do even to this day? Well, I've lived longer in the States than I ever did in Canada now, right? You know, probably twice as long is as I have. Is that weird for you? It's a little weird it? because, you know, in your, in your heart and in your mind, you think of yourself as the product of your upbringing because so you think of yourself as, in my case, Canadian. But I've lived far more years as an American – and a naturalized American now than than I have uh, or did as a Canadian living up there, but it's a true thing. You know, the first sixteen years, let's you know, I graduated high school when I was sixteen. So um, from sixteen, yeah, I was a little bit young. They they skipped me a grade when I was younger. Your birthday is in late August, so you're right? Just, yeah, and they skipped me a grade, and so I ended up being. I was always the youngest and shortest kid in my class growing up because I was bumped up a year, right? Yeah. So I was young. So I graduated at 16. So mm-hmm. let's say from, from birth to 16 years old, those are my formative years, right? My, my Canadian years. Those 16 years in my mind felt a lot longer than anything that's come since, if that makes sense. Because when we're younger, the passage of time is so much slower in our brains because every year is a larger percentage of our time on the earth until we get older. You know, uh, so for a 10-year-old... I've never thought about it Well, think about it, it this way. Like that, for yeah. a 10-year-old, you know, the, 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 the year from your ninth birthday to your 10th birthday, that's a tenth of your life. Yes. That's 10% of your life, you know. 10% of your life as a 50-year-old is five years. So, you know, relatively speaking, yes. for a 10-year-old, uh, you know, a year encompasses the amount of time like a, that, that five years might encompass for someone much older in terms of in their mind how yes. long time is. is. So my, my childhood years seem to have lasted forever. And so I think a lot about my Canadian years because they, they seem to last forever uh, just from a perception standpoint. But all that said, yeah, there's part of my heart that just kind of, you know, you, you see the anthem, you, you hear the anthem, you see the flag, you watch the flames, you watch Canada's Olympic teams and you have that natural affection. Um, even though America's been my home, it's provided my livelihood, all my kids have been born here, I have fewer ties to Canada than I do to the U.S., and I am a naturalized citizen, too. I, it's not, I, 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 and, and so, you know, America's a big part of my identity now, uh, but Canada will never leave me by the same token. Did you have to take a test to naturalize? Uh-huh. Was it hard? Oh, yes. They nailed it. But you, know, you study. You my need mom, to study. My mom took this test from Mexico when she was 14, and she said it was super hard because she didn't know any U.S. history. Right. And, and you know, coming to go to yeah. BYU, you know, coming to BYU uh, well, first of all, you take the ACT, and you already kind of feel like the ACT is kind of slanted, you know, this way. I, I felt like I had to study extra hard for the ACT because of where I was living. Yeah. And then you come down, and you're taking American Heritage, and these are, these are new things for you at this point. You're, you're having to really <laughs> catch up. I mean, granted, we do, I think we in, in Canada kind of pride ourselves on being, you know, citizens of the world and, and kind of knowing more about more things, perhaps. Yeah. I think our perception up there was that, that, that you know, U.S. citizens are much more centralized, that they focus much more on their own border, right, and what's within their own borders than Canada. 
Um, so we, 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 we kind of prided ourselves on knowing more about the states than the states knew about us, if that makes any sense. That is for sure. Yeah. So when I came to BYU, it wasn't like I was just, you know, was, you know stumbling around in the dark. I felt like I had a pretty good grip on, on w- what America English. was about. <laughs> I spoke a different brand of English, and I lost my accent over time. But, when you know, you it, was the whole, it? it was the whole, you know, the out in the boat and sorry and yep. all those things. It, that, like, once a show... I felt like it came out on Satake or something. I was like, oh, he said a boot. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, yeah. barely. I could barely hear it. But yeah. no, I, I was kind of a novelty to my to my classmates at BYU my first year or two because they, they, they say, <laughs> say, like, this, say this. Say this. Say that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I lost it over time. But uh, yeah. When, when did you lose it? Like uh, post college or something? Yeah, it was probably sometime late in college. Or Your mission also takes a little bit out of you. When you yeah. go speak a, a, a different language for two years, yep. it also gives you an entirely different feel for cadence and rhythm and accents and things. And then when I got back on my mission, I wasn't home for too long before I was right back at school. So, um, you know, really my hardcore Canadian existence kind of ended after high school. Because once I came to BYU, I was only going home for Christmas and summers, uh, and then I got um, for I the got, stampede, right? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we just had that. Uh, they just had it this past month. Well, earlier this month, the stampede's a great time in Calgary. If you're going to go, go, go there, that's got, when you want to go. Got to go. Free, can- uh, free pancake breakfast on every corner downtown. It's a fun time to be there. But um, yeah, w- once I came down to BYU, uh, I was married. Uh, while I was still in school, and then KSL hired me while I was still in school. So when I graduated from BYU, I was already like I already had my life set up. I was already married. I already had a, a job, full time job, and so I had no real, I had nothing pulling me back to Canada. I had no reason to go back home. You know, so this was going to be my new home now, as long as I stayed employed. Okay, so you come to BYU as a sixteen year old. I just turned yeah, so I I, I turned seventeen um, the week of cl- first week of class. As okay, a so you're seventeen. Yeah. What's that like? You're you're super young. You're in another country. Yeah, no, it was and it was now hard. You're, now you're at BYU. Yeah, it was. I still remember. This is eighty four. This is eighty four. What fall of 84. a fall! So to yeah, well, show yeah. up here. So August uh, August twenty sixth, nineteen eighty four. I turned seventeen while I'm already down here because school's going to start like the next Monday. I think something like that. So I, I was down here for my seventeenth birthday of my freshman year. So just turned seventeen. Parents came down. I still remember we stayed at the Colony Inn on University Avenue, which is no longer the Colony Inn, but the building is still there. It's still a rundown, like, motel-looking building now, and it's still there. Um, that was where we stayed, at the Colony Inn on University Avenue to get me to school in the fall of 84. And you had a raucous birthday party. Just, just a kid, still 17. relatively speaking. And uh, I remember they, I, I stayed at Deseret Towers, the dear departed Deseret Towers. The ones that are there now are not the ones I recognize. Okay? The old dorm. The old, one. The old yep. DT is, is yep. yeah. Oh, crazy story But uh, Q Hall. I stayed in Q Hall. So my parents dropped me off uh, at Q Hall, got unpacked. Uh, I still didn't have, didn't have my roommate yet, so it's just me by myself in this dorm room, and I watched them drive away, and I, I'd never felt more alone and, and borderline, not afraid, but just a yes. fish out of water. Um, you know, university, different country, Folks are gone. Very few. Fr- I had some friends from Calgary that came down to go, but they weren't my roommate or anything. So um, just kind of on my own. And I remember just sitting in the dorm room, just kind of wondering what this is going to be all about, you know. <laughs> and 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 it's a Saturday, as I recall, um, when they left. And it's the day BYU plays Pitt mm. in the first ESPN televised college football game, right? Yeah. So it's BYU's season opener of the mythical 1984 season. And I'm in my dorm room, still waiting for a roommate, just kind of looking around, and I'm still not clued into 
the whole college life thing yet. And I and the Pitt BYU game I believe happens before classes actually began. I think it was the Saturday before the Monday that classes began. I think at BYU. And so I'm in the dorm room and and I'm noticing people start filing past Q Hall, like lines of people. And I'm what's what's happening? Where are they going? What's going on? They're all walking toward the Marriott Center, which is just a few hundred yards down the road. And so I just go down to the lobby and walk out and start joining the line and just started following the crowd. And what they were doing was going into the Marriott Center. BYU set up a big screen in the Marriott Center for fans to walk into the building and watch the BYU pit game on ESPN. Because ESPN was a new enough thing at that time that not everyone had ESPN, right? That was a, yeah. a you know kind of a rare thing. Yeah. Um, but they had it set up at the Marriott Center to be on a big screen. And so like I walked— on the floor because they don't have a jumbo Yeah, it was, just, it was suspended or? from the ceiling. So oh, it was, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the screens went stretched down to the floor uh, from the you know, speakers or whatnot, the, the old scoreboard. And so they had a big screen set up, and I just wandered into the Marriott Center— Took a seat by myself with the other BYU fans, and that was my introduction to BYU football. Was <laughs> watching the intro, BYU number three pit. Yeah, watching BYU at Pitt, um, and it was an earlyish game. It felt like it started ten, eleven, twelve o'clock Provo time, um, and that was my introduction to life at BYU, Cougar football, Robbie Bosco, all these things. By the time I had a class with Glenn Kozlowski, I was like, "This is insane." <laughs> I'm in a class with Glenn Kozlowski. Well, Glenn is insane. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, getting to know him over time. And, but but I, that was just – that was my introduction to all those names, yeah. Adam Haysbert and all these – it all just kind of came through on that one day. And then I was in it, you know. So. What, a, what a day to just drop in. Okay, so do you go a year? Do you go two years and then you go on a mission? Uh, yeah, I was, since I was young, I got two years in. You so. got two years and, in. And, and, you know – We call that a Russ Chalavea. That's what – and uh, Ian Dulan. Okay. They both went two. I got and then two, came back and then two. I left. And, I think and, Russ might have gone three and then come back. And one, so at the but. same time, you know, as soon as I got to campus, one of the first things I did was wander down to the old KBYU newsroom in the, uh, in the HVAC, the Fine Arts Center. Um, and in, in the tunnel of the HVAC was where the KBYU TV uh, newsroom was. And I wandered in there. I met the news director and said, hey, I'm a freshman. I want to be a broadcaster. I Your want to be a sportscaster. It was like the first week. Oh, first for days. You. I was. I didn't even know where to go. Oh, no, no. I, 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 you know, again, it's a 17-year-old kid, wanders in, corners the news director and says, I'm Greg Grubel. I want to be a sportscaster. What do you think? And and he was like, oh, okay. I, you know, I admire your, your, your spunk, young young." <laughs> Young Bucko. Uh, no, Where's he, that accent from? No, he, <laughs> so he he essentially said, "Okay, I, I hear you." Um, you know, he said, I, "I get so many people that want to be sportscasters." That's kind of the thing. And he said, um, "Why don't you do this? Why don't you go find a, a, a BYU team no one knows about and do a story on them?" I go, "Do a story on them?" He says, "Yeah, I'll give you a photographer. I'll give you an editor, and uh, just go see what you can do." This what is, again, I, have, I haven't had any classes I yet. I haven't. That I, here I, right I, now. I hadn't. I hadn't. I had no background. Yeah. Other than the fact that I said, you know, I want to be a broadcaster. I've some public speaking. But he said, but for whatever reason, his name was Bill Silcock, by the way. Okay. Uh, Doctor Bill. Bill Silcock, who just retired uh, from a teaching position and uh, with the uh, Cronkite School at, the, at Arizona State. Yeah, he's been with. He's been there a long time. Absolutely. Legit. Oh yeah. No, he was a big time there, and he was forever here. Mm. Um, so Bill Silcock. Um, Bless his heart, kind of gave me my first break, if you will, and said, "Go, I'll give you a photographer, I'll give you an editor, go do a story." That's unbelievable. And so what I did was, I you know, this is I, I found um, the extramural fencing team, club team, 
Okay. BYU had a, cl- a fencing club or a fencing team, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And I went and spent a couple days with the fencers. Uh, they were they were they'd have their practices at the RB, and I did a story on the fencing club. Okay, and within a few days, it was on TV. So wow. that, that started it, and then of course on I KBYU. began. I, yeah, 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 exactly. They, they had they had the the, the student run news program, yep. uh, Utah News Tonight. It was called back at the UNT, Utah News Tonight, and so it'd be on Channel Eleven, and 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 uh, so it got on there. And then of course I'm you know then I started getting into my classes, and but I was brought along early, and they they kind of accelerated my development by saying go go get them. You know, and so for those first two years, I had done all the you know writing and reporting and anchoring and producing I could possibly fit into for those first two years before my mission. One of the biggest challenges for me was as part of my development, I, I would do some reporting and anchoring on on the FM uh, station KBYU FM Classical eighty nine. They'd have news at the top and the bottom of the hour, and they'd have the student run newscasts. And I sometimes I get put in charge of that, but my delivery did not jive with the FM managers or the audience. <laughs> How so? I was just way too fast, way too rapid, way too high energy. On a classical station. Right. Yeah. And so I was yanked. I, I, I was told he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't go back on the air until he's a lot slower and easier to understand. And the whole, so that, that was an issue early on. Was And it was a good lesson, too. I mean, I, I needed to change my delivery style. And as you can tell as we're talking, it's always been that way. Little frenetic, little fast paced, little energetic, little it type works A. For sports. Right, it's great for play by play and sports talk and those kinds of things. But FM news wasn't quite the fit, and so I needed to do some work on that. And so, <laughs> as 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 rapidly as I speak now, back in the day, way back in the day, it was much more of a problem and something I really had to work on. I was much less intelligible, and um, I've learned over time, hopefully at least, that I've 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 kept speed and pace. But still, uh, but but um, you know, enhanced it with um, the ability to enunciate and be easily understood. I think that should go on your LinkedIn as well. Former <laughs> Class Eighty Nine news <laughs> yeah. guy, <laughs> short lived. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you go on your mission. This is this is where uh, I have a random fun connection with you. Not only did we both go to Brazil, and where do you go again? You go to Sao Paulo North. Sao Paulo Norte. Sao Paulo Norte. So uh, how was that? How was Sao Paulo Norte in 85 to, or 86 to 88? Yeah, I got there Christmas week of 86. Christmas week? Yeah. Like what day? Like 23rd. I got there the 27th. Yeah, so, so I got there right before Christmas. And, yeah. and of course, when you go there at that time, it's the middle of summer, not yep. winter. Yep. And it's nothing but nonstop rain. And it's just rain, rain, rain. And that's at least what I walked into was a week of rain. Uh, at Christmas time, when you're missing your family and you're lonely and you're scared and you can't speak, and it was just, it was a, it was a. You're alone and you're scared again. Yeah. In another country. Yeah, that, that'll be the title of my book, Greg Rubel, Alone, alone and Scared. Alone and Scared. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but fully clothed. Yeah. <laughs> getting there was hard. It was a tough time to be there, to be kind of homesick, to have it be Christmas time, to have the weather be what it was, and just not feel like you could speak or converse or communicate. So you say, how was it? Well, the first month or two, not great. Yeah. And then things get better. It always gets yeah. better. And I found that it got better once you stop Xing days off the calendar. That was big for me. <laughs> <laughs> like you're on an island by yourself. Or something, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I went on my mission to the southern part of Brazil in Porto Alegre, mm-hmm. the north mission, mm-hmm. and I am at lunch. So I meet you when I'm 16, and as I mentioned, and I say, what did you do at BYU, and what do I get into? You let me go on Sports Night with Gregor Bell, a radio show you have. Which I had a talk is like show KSL. back on KSL back yeah, in the day. Yeah, you had a talk yeah. show. Who knew? 
And uh, so we get to know each other, and you're super nice and awesome, and you invite me to the studio, and it's amazing. Maybe we'll talk about that later. The point is I've established a relationship with you because I want to be the next you when you're done, right? That's still to this day when you're done in how am I, 10, 20 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I know you, and I go on my mission, and I'm like, oh, I know that Gregor Bell went to Brazil. I'm at lunch. And member's house? That's Yes. That's what you do in Brazil. You don't go to dinner. You go to lunch with members. Almost. Dinner, we just didn't even eat. It was, yeah. But anyway. You're on the road. You get a, yeah. something from so a cafe. So busy, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm talking to you know the, the husband. I'm like, oh, where did you go on your mission? He's like, Sao Paulo North. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm flipping through this book, and boom, I see a picture of you <laughs> as a missionary. And I'm in Brazil, and I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> Full head of hair, the whole deal, man. It's You're probably like, our mission directory. We had a little book, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, full head of hair. Important to note that. I can't wait to tell Greg in however long I have until I get home. <laughs> but that was super fun and random, yeah. and Brazil's yeah, so we, an so amazing we, country. Yeah, we do share that, uh, that, yeah. that link, uh, having both served down there. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so you go to Brazil, you mm-hmm. come back, mm-hmm. and— are you like a returning starter in broadcasting? If no, you will, I, I, having that, done that what was you the did? weird thing is when I because I'd gotten so much in, at least in my mind at the time, I felt I'd gotten so much in in the first two years, and I was so entrenched in the broadcast program. You know, how can I leave this? I, I, I could go pro now. You know, this whole thing is like I <laughs> declare early. Uh, no, it's like I was so into broadcasting at yeah. the time. I was like, oh, I'm going to break for two years. Am I going to? Am I going to lose it? You know, am I going to lose mm-hmm. it and lose my connection? And when I came back, it was a different feel altogether. Um, new group of students, you know, some new professors, and it just felt like I was starting all over again. I wasn't, but in my mind, I was like, "Wow, this feels like I'm back to square one." Um, but yeah, within a few months, you're you're back in doing the things you loved doing, and you're getting more and more experience uh, to the point where, when I was a junior, just so my first year back off the mission, that's when uh, Chris Tunis, uh, the KSL radio sports director, and for those who don't know the name Chris Tunis, he was. Utah's sports talk pioneer, if you will. Before the genre was a genre, before sports talk was a thing nationally, KSL gave Chris his own sports talk show at night, um, Sports Central. And, and you know, it was a new thing at the time, uh, sports talk radio. And so Chris Tunis, as the sports director at KSL, had this show, and he felt he needed some help in the office, and he posted for an internship. It was his first ever internship. And so I'm in, I'm in the tunnel. Uh, at the Harris Fine Arts Center where the newsroom was, and I see on the posting board, the cork board, a KSL Radio's posting for a sports intern. I'm like, this, I've got, this would be great. This is right up my alley. And I applied for it, and I got it. And that got me in the door at Broadcast House, got me in the door at KSL, working with the legendary Chris Tunis. And like, I'm like literally cutting his newspaper clippings and taping them to paper and, and, and splicing audio tape and doing all the grunt work that you do as Anyone a non-paid intern. 30 doesn't even understand, doesn't understand any of that. What you just but those said. are the things that I would do on a daily basis to help Chris Tunis get his sports talk show ready every day and get his sports cast ready. And so I was now in a professional broadcast environment. KBYU is awesome. And what they do with college students and the equipment we have and have had forever since the entire BYU broadcasting program is amazing. But now I'm in a professional shop and I'm learning the business with Chris Tunis and meeting Craig Bowlerjack and Steve Cyphers and all these guys that have just, you know, the names in, in sports and, of course, Paul James, who's both a KSL TV and radio legend at this point. But I'm in that building now and I'm getting that feel and that vibe as a non-paid intern. Uh, in the spring of 1989. And I, I, it's funny because the uh, the interns that I have working with me now, they're not paid. It's for credit. 
And and um, there are those who say, oh, you know, interns all need to get paid. They all, you know, they, no, there should be no for credit internships. And I was from the school that said, no, nah, you can. St- it's it's about the experience and the networking and the connection and the education more than it is a check. Um, and if, you know, f- for that matter, I was going to school in Provo. The internships in Salt Lake. I had no car. I was taking UTA. So I was paying for the internship <laughs> to get myself yep. to and from Salt Lake. I yep. was the one just to get in the building, right, and just to have the experience. So I, I don't. I, I think it's. I think it's okay to not be paid as an intern. That's your time to learn and grow as a student. You'll get. You'll get paid eventually. That's what this is all about. Yeah. But um, I really. I, but I. I mean, that's the way I did it. I respect all those who work with me who do it for credit because I think the valuable thing is are the things I mentioned. But that was my experience. Was coming up to work with Chris Tunis for those few months in the spring, and by doing that. Um, that then planted the seed in the manager's minds because once the internship ended, I went back to Canada. I, I got married soon thereafter, and I'm back at school. I'm back at BYU now as a married student, no job, but I'm working at KBYU doing the stuff there, getting paid a little bit there. Um, and But I'd planted the seed as an intern to where the news director contacted me and said, hey, Greg, we liked what you did as an intern for Chris. He speaks well of you. Uh, we have an opening for a weekend radio news anchor reporter. Do you want to try out for it? Do you want to apply for it? And I said, yes. I cut a tape. I applied, interviewed, and I got the job. Okay, I wanted to be a sportscaster. Here's a news job being offered me. Do I say no, thanks, but no thanks, or do I take it and, and do my very best? Well, obviously, the answer is I took it, did my very best, and a few news jobs over time then turned into a sports job, which turned into the sideline gig, which turned into the play-by-play gig and turned into a talk show gig and on and on we go. Uh, but it all started with that non-paid internship, grinding as hard as I could through that, hopefully leaving a good impression and then not closing the door to a news job, but saying, I'll do whatever you need me to do. And I learned a lot, learned a lot as a, as a one-man show. I mean, when Saturday, Sunday came along at KSL Radio, I was it. I was the reporter. I was the anchor. I was covering it all myself. And I learned a ton by working those two days a week. Those were jam-packed days because I go to school Monday to Friday, then work Saturday, Sunday at KSL, and then right back into it. It was a seven-day-a-week thing for a long time. And then the first full-time gig KSL offered me was overnights, weeknights, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. while I was still in school. So I'd go to school in the morning and early afternoon and then work all night at KSL. When I was, I was doing graveyards. Exactly. I had a few hours between like four and seven at night when I would sleep. Oh, my. So, and that was my last semester at BYU. I was a senior at BYU working full-time at KSL, trying to stay awake in class while working graveyards. And married? And married. And working graveyards, um, news job. Again, I was the overnight news anchor and reporter for KSL Radio. So I'd record the Larry King show, play back Larry King. I learned a lot about Larry King and his guests. Believe me, he was like a hero to mine for my job. And then I was working the overnights. And then at, at, at 6 in the morning, the shift would end. I'd, I'd run from broadcast house to Temple Square, get on a bus, get on the UTA, take Let's the bus down. to a car at some take point the, Hey, I married into a car. Um, I never had a car <laughs> until I got married. Uh, I would take the bus to Provo, sleep on the bus, wake up as it hit Zions Bank by Provo High School, wake up, go to class, finish class, get on the bus, go back to Salt Lake, sleep, work, and repeat. Wow. And that was the, those were the early years, right? But you need those. I embrace those. I cherish those years. Um, you know, once graduation came, I was already a full-time employee. And again, positions opened up as I went along. But uh, man, that was a wild time, but I needed it. That's, that's insane, man. Okay, so you graduate, you get the job. 
you don't get the job with the Eagles, but you're the PA and all that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at what point do you finally get into sports? A reporter, uh, a, a news reporter named Jim Braden at KSL Radio was he'd be a news reporter for most of the day, but he would do morning sports for a little sliver of the day. And he was also the sideline reporter for the BYU games on the weekend with Paul James and Mark Lyons. He replaced Doug Miller. So Doug Miller was replaced by Jim Braden. Jim Braden's now the new sideline reporter for the football games on BYU radio. I mean, on KSL radio, I beg your pardon. And and he would also do morning sports at KSL. What so year is this? This is 1991-92. Okay, so, so in the spring of 92... Uh, Jim Braden gets another job, gets a job with Salt Lake County, and he leaves KSL. Well, his job was morning sports and football sidelines. Now that job is open, okay? And so after three years of toiling away in news, I see an opening, and I I apply for it. I get it, and now I am doing sports. I was also producing for the Doug Wright Show. So to make it a full-time job, I had to do more than just, just the morning sports. I had to do the morning sports and then produce for Doug Wright and then do the sidelines on top of that. So all that became a full-time job. And so a little bit of news slash Doug Wright. And Doug Wright's amazing. I mean, people, again, Doug yes, Wright, talk dude, show legend. And for a little while in my career, I produced for him, honor. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's so awesome. I was his producer. I wasn't very good. Uh, <laughs> but I, that was my job. Like, please take the sports show. But morning sports anchor, produced for Doug Wright, and then sidelines on the weekends with football. Mm. And so as a part of that, I'd be down at BYU now during the week getting interviews, watching practice. I was in the BYU picture now finally. That's 1992. So this will be my 30th season. So when the season kicks off here in September, this will kick off my 30th season on the crew. The first one being 1992 as the sideline guy replacing Jim Braden. My first ever game at UTEP. John Walsh's first game after Ty Detmer graduated. And I remember everything about that weekend. The way the ground looked uh, as the plane landed in El Paso to the smoke in the parking lot from the barbecue to everything about that weekend. Hmm. That was my BYU football broadcast debut with Paul James and Mark Lyons as his new sideline guy at UTEP in 1992. This will be my 30th season since that first game against UTEP back then. And uh, I remember being so ambitious, and I wanted to give Paul James <laughs> absolutely everything a sideline guy could give him. I shoehorned myself into every part of that broadcast. Bless Paul, Paul James, because I, I, I wanted to be on every 30 seconds with something. You know, I said, I've got you this, I've got you that. I'd be in the stands talking to John Walsh's parents, interviewing them live. I was, I was doing every possible what? thing I could to give flavor to his broadcast. I think after that first broadcast, we almost, we said a little bit less is more probably here. But um, I still remember just wanting to give Paul James as much as I possibly could so he'd think I was good at what I was doing. Yeah. You haven't lost that sort of uh, vigor to prepare and execute well, though. That same idea. Obviously, you know, like, how much is good. Uh, right. From doing this for thirty years, uh, this being the sport specifically, but oh my gosh! Yeah, no, but, I just I just wanted to be yeah. as good as I could possibly be yes. for him, and, I, and I'm exaggerating. I wasn't on every thirty seconds, but I wanted to give him the option to come to me for whatever he needed. Yes, I, I set him up with every possible scenario to, to you know if you need flavor for this or that, I'm here. I got you. Yes. You know, and that was always my 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 motivation was be good for Paul. Yes, because the one thing more than anything I learned from traveling with and watching Paul James work. Um, was just how much prep went into game night and game day, how much he cared, how much it mattered to him. As long as he'd been doing it, you know, he, and and he would still, it was legal pad, write things out word for word. I mean, his pregame show was scripted. 
You know, word. I'd watch him script it on a legal pad in his hotel room, word for word with a pen. And then he'd read it word for word. But I'm like, wow, the way you deliver it, it's like no one would ever know you're reading it. No one would ever know that's scripted because that's just so natural. Yeah. So I learned everything. I, everything I still do today, I learned from Paul on those nights watching him work. And granted, I went I, I, and I did legal pad too until we had computers and got to do it, you know, with, with word processing Thank programs. Goodness. But but it was all it was all legal pads and sharpies and and handwritten everything because I watched him handwrite his boards and handwrite his scripts. And so I, I I did that exactly how Paul did it. But the preparation component and the hours he put into it and not shortcutting anywhere. I adopted hopefully all of that in, into what I tried to do um, You know, when, when I had the same opportunity. I have been highly influenced by you, obviously. I would say the most influential broadcaster on my play-by-play career at the different other levels, uh, You know, uh, not football and basketball, but like to the board you do, to the amount of prep, to the da-da-da. At some point I realized, okay – I can probably wing it pretty well, but I'm going to be as good as I am prepared. Like I will be no better than that. So I really appreciate that from you from over yeah. the years of letting me look at the boards you use. For those who don't know, play-by-plays, you don't just show up and call a game. You you create a board if you want. has different info that you want to relay. Teams make what, what are called game notes, all those sort of going away for a lot of teams. And we so have our like, own game note. We also produce our own game notes in a yes, lot of instances. Other too. nuggets yeah. and yeah. personality-based yeah. things mm-hmm. or whatever that we want to inject at the right time. And there are like nuances to this, right, of, of radio and TV and when, when you insert yourself and when you don't. But you've been totally influential on me in that way where, oh, I want to be the most prepared person relative to this broadcast on the planet. Like if I'm calling this game – I got to be the smartest guy in the room because I'm the play-by-play. Yeah. The analyst breaks it down. There's and there's an art to this, and mm-hmm. it's been fun to sort of study this uh, from a distance with you, and then up close. Yeah, and in, in, and in turn, I studied Paul, and then what you do is yeah. you you adapt. You you take the foundation, then you build around it. You yes. know, you, like you, your yeah. style. It's your design. Yeah. After yeah. that, you you get the foundation it gives you, and then you create the house around it the way you want the house to look, and that's how we all kind of do it. But there's a foundational thing that I'll always be grateful to Paul James for, and you know, peek behind the curtain here. When now, you know, when when you when you host a two hour sports talk show or you call a four hour football game, that's that's all ad libbed, right? I mean, we we clearly yes. have the ability to speak extemporaneously and and go off the cuff. Um, so, I mean, ad-libbing is something we do for yes. a living. But the things I can control and the things I can prepare, I do so to the utmost. And so the peek behind the curtain part here is, even though I could ad-lib, I could easily ad-lib my half-hour pregame for a football game, my half-hour pregame for a basketball game. I could do that off the cuff with no problem. Yes. But I script everything word for word because I can, and it gives me the ability to present structure and content to the audience the exact way I design it. So when someone's listening, when they're driving into the Marriott Center, driving into the LaBelle Edwards Stadium, or listening to pregame one way or the other, and they hear Riley and me conversing in our pregame, or Mitchell and me, or whatever I'm putting out there, I'm working off a script. I'm not just throwing stuff out there. I'm working off a script, and a word-for-word written script, and ideally— when the audience hears me, they hear it delivered in such a way that it sounds conversational, it sounds casual, and it sounds um, ad libby in a way. But in reality, I've got my typed written pages in front of me, and I'm reading my script, but delivering it in a way that I have, I'm able to do now after years of doing it. That sounds ideally good to the audience. But I want, I want Riley to know where I'm going. I want Mitch to know where I'm going. I want the audience to know where I'm going and have a design to what I do. And so I really, I've always enjoyed that part of it, the scripting part is a chance to get down and write a mini book every game. Mm-hmm. You get to set up the chapter 
you know, the preface for that night's game. You get to write the preface for every game you do. Yeah. You get to set it up the way you want. And I really enjoyed that. I, you know, I, I love using words. I like word play. I like alliteration, as you know. Uh, there are certain devices that I tend to use more frequently than others, but I really do enjoy it. I mean, language to me is so much fun. Um, I can be a stickler at times um, for how it's used and, and how it's written, but I, I, I've taught myself to be that way. I wasn't this. I wasn't as, I wasn't as studied. I wasn't as learned in in proper use of English for a long uh, for a long time. I wasn't a very good, um, uh, you know, print style writer either for a long time until I taught myself how to do it. Uh, and I, I'm glad I did because I I think the the more I became concerned about how to write and speak or how to especially write better, I became a better speaker of it as well. So, I started doing. Rugby on the radio this year, and I we had a little pregame thing, and I I script that part. Yeah, because and, and, and not you everything. It. And, and 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 you know, yeah. bu- bullet points will suffice, yes. and keywords will. You don't have to go word for. But the, I love having the structure part. I think it yes. helps. And by the way, kudos to you because we talk about the sports. I call I call four main sports now, right? I call football, men's basketball, some women's basketball occasionally, women's soccer, baseball. Just recently you added, started baseball, right? Yeah, you just baseball's baseball. a new one for me. Yeah. That's four sports, and they're pretty typical. But you call you know when you call volleyball and you call rugby, you call sports that are off. Uh, a little bit of the grid for traditional broadcasters. Yeah. I, you know, I, you know, I haven't done hockey. I'd be lost trying to do That's what you do. That's the only thing I have over you, Greg. No, I've done three hockey. Yeah, That's well, it. You, so you've done you've <laughs> done sports. I haven't. I, I've done I've done a couple color games on TV back in the day for the Grizzlies. But for the most part, dang it, you, you can't. You know, I, you know, I stepping in to do rugby, stepping in to do volleyball. Uh, these are the things you do that I haven't done, and and for you know, and most broadcasters couldn't just step in and do, and so. You know, a good friend of mine is Todd Harris. We were we were uh, classmates at BYU back in the day, and and Todd's one of Todd's greatest gifts is his ability to call almost any sport you could imagine because he's done almost yes. any sport you can imagine. He's doing a ton of MMA. He's been done in the Olympics. World's strongest man, right? Was him you his know, voice? Like, I mean, I mean, he he can do surfing, sailing, skateboarding, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. That's just and most broadcasters yes. don't have a chance. Todd's done it all. You've probably heard Todd's voice without knowing, right? It, if you and, don't and, recognize, and, Todd, and yeah. you know, we're. You know, the Olympics featured skateboarding this time. That was Todd Harris doing that. Um, and, and those who don't, you know, Todd is a BYU guy. When you see Todd's face, you don't, you probably hear more than you see him. But when you see Todd, you'll know that's a BYU guy. Was trained how I was trained. We've been yeah. friends forever since we were classmates here at BYU. It's been so fun to watch him and his career just kind of explode. And he still lives in Utah, but he's, he's a world, literally a world traveler. Be a sportscaster, see the world. That's Todd Harris. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, other people, and thank you, by the way. That was very nice. Um, other people who were in school with you, wasn't, was Dave McCann with you? We graduated the same day. Jane Clayson? Yeah. Who else? That's pretty good, the, you and those three. No, Dave people. and Todd and Jane. Those are some, yeah, there, there are a lot of newscasters that bounce around and did different yeah. things. But uh, of people I still associate with today that are in the sports realm, well, Dave McCann's an obvious one, yeah. and, and Todd Harris. Those are kind of like um, the guys that I would still say I, I you know, I'm, am most, um, in, I'm in most contact with these days. And we were all relatively at the same time there. Is that yeah. the greatest gr- era of BYU <laughs> no, no, sports no, broadcaster? Like I don't know. Students ever? I like, mean, the one thing, Dave and I are still around doing what we hoped we'd do with BYU. Yeah. So there's that. that I mean, that, there's something to be said for that. That's fun. Yeah. When did you, 
know or or think, oh, I want to broadcast BYU specifically? When did that first start? Uh, I, I think once I once I got in 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 with Chris Tunis and started working at KSL, I realized just for, first of all, a how desired a location KSL is. Like KSL, still the gold standard of, of fifty thousand watts. So to me, you know, KSL was like wow, like yeah. you you've made it if you can if you can stick there. And then when you know because they had the BYU rights, getting involved with the BYU you know, broadcast at that point, then, well, if you're in it, you want to stay in it. You know, BYU was my school, graduated there, you know, passion for it, and now I get to be their sideline guy and eventually a play-by-play guy. But, uh, yeah, once I got into it, I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave it. You know, I, I didn't, I mean, there are, there are certain broadcasters who get in who want to climb the ladder, you know, step-by-step, market-to-market, ESPN, boom, that's your, that's your end destination. I was, I was not that guy. I was the guy that thought, wow, if I could be associated with BYU sports, I want to stay associated with BYU sports. And so, um, you know, I've been able to do it for, you know, again, 30 years now um, in one way or another. And I'm just uh, – I feel blessed to have uh, been able to do it as long as I have. At the beginning of this, did you think, oh, if I can – like you said, did you ever think, oh, maybe I'll go somewhere else? Or did you think, no, I'm going to be a lifer? Well, I <laughs> – because it's hard too. Because BYU has to want to keep you, right? And and there has to be, and they have, of and there has to be obviously a, a position um, that that fits you or that you're uh, qualified for that's open to you. Like so, when you're the sideline guy, as I was, I'm young, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old, whatever I was when I got the sideline. You're gig. so young when you get that, right? So so I'm I'm young, and Paul's toward the end of his career. So there's a gap there that makes sense. That if you're going to train for that job. If you if you look at it as training, yeah. then timing wise, it might work out if you're any good, right? Um, but still, it's totally unpredictable. I mean, I, I didn't go into the sideline gig thinking I can be the next play by play guy. There are those who tell me that when I was at BYU as a student, I would tell them I want to be the voice of the Cougars someday, mm. and I may have, but I don't remember that. Remember that being a driving thing in my life, like like Paul James or Bust. That's not how I felt. I think I was just happy to be you know working at KSL, having this great sideline gig, and learning from PJ. But I had no indication, you know, when Paul's time would, would come to an end. And I had no indication from KSL that I'd be the guy they would turn to. But what changed— You're ev- saying in 2000, 2001? Yeah, yeah early—no, uh, I'm, I'm talking about um, in the mid-'90s when I'm, just, when I'm doing the sideline. Yeah. So, it's, so from, from 92 through 2000 is when I'm, I'm Paul's sideline guy. I have no indication when it's going to come to an end for Paul, and I have no indication that I'm going to be his replacement. I'm just doing my job the best I can as a sideline guy. Yeah. I mean, my twenties, late twenties. You're not thinking about the next step. No, and and, yeah. and and to the contrary, Jerem. I mean, when you're the sideline guy, you walk this, you walk the field on game day with the headset on, and Paul's in your ear the entire. You hear Paul James's broadcast and Mark's broadcast in your headset. You know, you're you're not a fan, but you're a listener. You're a really invested listener, but you're you're listening for how they do it. And I would constantly think, I could never do this. I could never do really? what Paul's doing. Oh, that, 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 that was the prevailing thought. Huh. I thought, okay, I can handle sidelines. I, I, I can jump in every few minutes with something. That's what it works. But call a play? Are you kidding me? It was too hard. I mean, because I, I, I'd watch the play, the play in front of me from field level as I hear Paul call it. And I'm like, how did he just get all that information into those last six seconds? Mm. I'm still trying to catch up visually. And I just thought, I remember thinking, wow, it'd be so cool to do what he does, but I could never do it. I couldn't do it. Hmm. It was just seemed too hard. Um, the memorization alone, 
The memorization alone, like I'd, I'd be with Paul in his room when he'd do his memorization drills. I'm like, dude, how, how are you fitting 60 names and numbers in your brain to just recall at a moment's notice? Memorization drills. Yeah, they become, what, what they become those, my life. What I, mean, those like? I mean, I have mine now, but I mean, I, you know, you'd help him memorize. You'd, be, you'd, you'd help him in the room, right? What would that be like? Well, he'd, he'd, you, know, you, you rattle off a number, he gives you a name, yeah. you know, and a position. And, and, and so, but how he got to the point where they'd be locked in, I'm like, this is like, mis- like mystical, magical. How do you do it? <laughs> but over time, I trained myself to do the same thing. But this all just felt too big for me. And, and so, you know, it was, it was cool to think about being the next guy, but I had no, it wasn't really a real thing. So you're moving along that way. And what changes everything is when he had his heart issues during a game, no less. 96 Utah. 96 Utah game, football game. So we're we're in the winter, the fall winter of 1996. I've been doing my I've doing done sideline 92, 3, 4, 5. This is my fifth, fifth. year on the sidelines. Um, no play by play experience at all. Oh, you had none zero. I'd never called Nothing a game of any. No, no, no. I'm the sideline guy because I'm working at KSL and the gig came open and I got it. But I'm training as but I hey, go. But hey, you had done some PA. I had done some PA. <laughs> I can I can talk into a mic, but no play by play at all. And then the Utah game of 1996 up in Salt Lake City, Steve Sarkeesian, I think he attempted 12 passes all day, and BYU just destroyed Utah that day. Just ran the ball for 500 yards. It was crazy. I was in the Utah student section cheering for BYU. Oh, good. The last part's important. Um, <laughs> but it was the pregame of the Utah game that year up, up at Rice-Eccles, uh, the old Rice Stadium, and, uh, and Paul has a heart episode, has a cardiac episode in the pregame, so much so that it required paramedics to come in and attend to him while he's on the air with the headset on. And While so, he's on the air. Oh yeah, no, no. He's he's on the air and he's having issues. Is he like, describing it? As he no, goes? no. He's, he's talking. No one, it. no one knows what's going on. Oh my gosh. Now, ESPN, I think, had the game that day. I think they actually made reference to it in the broadcast. They they took a shot of Paul in the booth, saying, you know, he's grinding through. This guy, he, he got, you know, he didn't feel well before the game, but he's, you know, staying till the end, kind of thing. But so Paul had a hard episode in the pregame. Paramedics monitored him up. I mean, the the things on his chest. I mean, this is all happening while he's doing the broadcast pregame, and essentially they wanted him to leave the booth and and go get treated right away because they could tell this is a significant episode. And Paul said, "I'm not leaving. This is the BYU Utah game." And BYU's twelve and one, by the way, going and, into this. Game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They lost this the game is early in the one season. of the greatest teams in BYU yeah, history. He doesn't yeah. want to step out. So he's you know he said, "I'm, I'm going to stay. I feel better now." He took a couple pills. He felt he'd gotten through it, kind of thing. And they basically <laughs> understatement of the century. Yeah, and I, I think he, they, he basically had to sign like a waiver saying, you know, I'm 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 refusing medical advice yes, here. I'm staying. If you die a right. Yeah. So he does, and and you know he does the game. Having reco- and, and and during the pregame, I'm I'm on the field, right? I've got the headset on, I've got the jetpack on. I'm doing my sideline gig, and the engineer tells me in my ear, the audience can't hear, but he tells me you may need to come up, you may need to be ready. I go ready for what? He goes, well, Paul's Paul's not feeling well. I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, I no way could I have called that game, right? There's just absolutely no way. Play by play prep, just jump in. Play by play prep and sideline prep, not the same thing. Had so you I, ever so, thought had that thought previously? By the way, no. that maybe. You would have to call a game if something no. happened to PJ. No, because he never missed a game. No, he's PJ. You've never missed a game. So I haven't. Uh, no football games missed. That's right. So except so, for the birth of your child. Oh, as a play-by-play. Yeah. Sideline, you missed one game. My first bowl game in '92. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because uh, we had a yeah. I because incredible run. Yeah, because I, I I didn't know I was a sideline guy yet. So we we planned to have a baby in December of '92. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't have the gig yet, and so I, it's a good excuse. I didn't know I'd have the gig. So, but I missed that first <laughs> bowl game uh, as a sideline guy. So Paul has this thing happen to him, and turns out I don't need to go up. He does the game, 
and BYU wins. In fact, it's the last game that BYU's beaten Utah by more than a touchdown. I hate that stat so much. 1996 we're talking about. It's been that long. So when BYU wins, it's a squeaker. When Utah wins, it could be a squeaker or a bit of a crazy game gets away from you. But, um, you know, close games are more the the, the rule than the exception. But that said. Just rush for 300 plus yards, you're good. BYU ran for a ton. We didn't hardly th- uh, BYU hardly threw the ball. Steve Sarkeesian, great quarterback. I think he threw it twelve times. We can check, I think we can check that number. Twelve. Was oh, it tw- seven of twelve? I yeah, yeah. I think he threw it twelve times total. Anyway, just Silly. all running. Silly. Anyway, great game. And, and and maybe for Paul's benefit, it wasn't dramatic. It was a pretty. It was. Oh. It was. It was. It was <laughs> <laughs> not sure he could have survived. Literally a nail biter. Or yeah. two thousand yeah. up there. So we do the game. Oh. Blowout. Great. Happy times. I, I go home. He goes home. No, he goes to the hospital. I go home. He goes to the hospital like they told him to. And I remember I'm at home after the game. He calls me from the hospital bed and says, I'm having six bypasses um, that I need surgery. You need to be in Seattle on Tuesday night for a basketball game. So that was that was it. That's how it started. Paul James has to have surgery. He's on the sidelines for a month or five weeks. And the next assignment he had was the BYU-Washington basketball game up in Seattle um, Tuesday. The surgery or the game was Saturday. His surgery was Sunday or Monday, and then the game was Tuesday. Well, now he says, you're, you're going to go on a plane and go. I guess he probably told KSL. He probably talked and said, who can do it? And he probably said, well, Greg's right here. He knows a little bit about how to do this. Let's send him. And so for whatever reason, Paul, the station get together, trust me, and, and, and that starts my play-by-play career. You've had nothing to do with basketball before, right? No, I hadn't called a game. I hadn't called anything of any kind, mind you. And, that is amazing that your first so, play-by-play gig is KSO Radio, Men's Hoops. Yeah. In Just the, right into it. It's one of the first games the 1996-97 season, a season in which what they won one game. Season. They went 1-25. Yes. I got the one win, by the way. Paul didn't, get, didn't get to call a win that year. Sorry, at, Aggies. At the Marriott Center. So that Tuesday night in Seattle— um, I, I, I went and, uh, and, and called the game, and BYU lost by like 50-odd points. It was bad. Yeah. How was that for your first game? <laughs> was it maybe 95-44, something like that. Maybe lost by 51 points, something like that. Oh. Um, yeah, no, my first game was, was a, literally a 50-point blowout. 1996-97 season, BYU at Washington. I think they lost 95-44. to 44. I think it was 51 points. Um, I got to use Paul Ruffner, Paul James's color guy, and that was my first game. And that was the first game. 95-44. Yeah, there it is. 51 <laughs> points. So the first game I ever Jeez. called, first game I ever called was a 51-point loss. And things didn't get a whole lot better that year. And again, they yeah. went, they went You're one like, this is but that, great. But that was my introduction to play-by-play, was calling a 51-point loss and then being with a team that won one game. But I, I, I remember, I don't remember feeling crushed by the 51 points. I remember being exhilarated that I made it through. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like, I, wow, I just did that. Mm-hmm. And that's not rocket science, but you've never done it before. It's, you know, you're talking to an audience that still cares about BYU and you're not Paul James. How does it all come together? I'm so glad that it happened in the non-social media era. Like, if Twitter had been waiting to see how I do, you know, replacing Paul James, you know, it would have been probably more than I could handle. But uh, as it was, I felt like I made it through. I got through, you know. And, and it, it, it wasn't. It was, it wasn't, uh, you know, my first play-by-play was BYU softball on the internet in front of seven people. Yeah, this is you know like, what I mean? Like, yeah, no, no one was watching. And, and, get the bad And no one out. knew this was going to be a 1-25 in year yet. They just right. knew this was going to be a newish team for Roger. And then Roger soon got let go and yep. the new coach. It was, it was such a wild, weird year to be introduced to play-by-play. Yes. And then when Paul came back, 
Um, we made a bargain. Uh, he bargained with me, rather, that uh, he said he would do the home basketball games and I'd finish off the season on the road. So for the first month or two months of the season, I did everything. Then when Paul came back, we split home and road. But in the interim, I got the one football game. And that's another. That's a different deal, too. Basketball is one thing. Football is a different deal. And I got the WAC championship game of 1996, BYU and Wyoming and Las Vegas. That was the one football game Paul had to miss due to the heart surgery. So I called that game, and it's an overtime win, and, and you know, my, my, my voice went even higher than it normally does. And, and, and so that, but that was a whole new experience, too, was yes. calling a football game, you know, and, 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 you know, you're not Paul James. How do you do Paul's job? And, Are and you so, sweating in nervousness? Super nervous. Super task? nervous. Yeah. I, I mean, these days I don't get nerves, right? I don't yeah. feel that. But I remember those, those first games. Super nervous. Holy you just feel like cow. every people's hang, you feel like everyone's hanging on your every word, and you can't make a mistake. And then when you get to a football game, you're not PJ. PJ is PJ. He's got a great sure. booming, melodic, rhythmic, poetic voice, and oh gosh, you just I mean, gold standard for me. And I'm just me, you know. And so, uh, but yet I was grateful to get that shot to try and call a football game. The fact that it went to overtime, and I think that helped people kind of enjoy it too. The fact that it was so dramatic, and they weren't so focused on my performance. It was like, what a great game. You know, and I got to be right with him. What a great game I got to call. And then Paul came back, did the Cotton Bowl. He got back in time for the Cotton Then That was no gimme, too. You know, he got back in time for the Cotton Bowl win over Kansas yeah, State. Yeah, like four weeks later. Yeah, so, you know, and I was back on sidelines, but Paul was back in the booth. And that was fun, too, to have him make it back. And everyone's so glad that he made it. And then when that season ended, he stayed doing football only and gave me basketball. I say gave me basketball. Um, and so those next few years... 97 to 2000, when I was doing basketball, he was doing football. Those were huge transition years for me. That's when I like, learned how to do play-by-play. So that when Paul left in 2000 with Lavelle and, and quit everything, football and basketball, I think it made it easier for KSL to look at me and say, that's our guy. He's ready. If, if, Paul, hadn't got, hoops, yeah, if Paul hadn't gotten sick, let's say Paul has perfect health through the year 2000 and then he retires with Lavelle. Well, I might have had a shot, but... It just as likely that KSL would have said nationwide search. Let's see what happens. And I don't get the gig because um, I would have had no play-by-play experience. I would have had no experience, right? So those those transition years, mm-hmm. the football game I got, the basketball games I got, that I think helped make decisions that put me, you know, as as an option for Paul when he retired. If that didn't happen, I may not have the gig I'd, at all. So you know, it took it takes an. Uh, uh, an event or a circumstance of, of misfortune to result in someone's good fortune in this case. And it goes back to the adage too, you know, what's luck? It's preparation meeting opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, in I a way, in call. a way I'd prepared learning yep. under Paul, yep. then the opportunity comes in a weird way. And that's luck for Greg. He yep. gets, he gets a chance to try his, his hand out at play by play. Third person reference. That's a card. <laughs> so <laughs> by those years of, of preparation, as a play-by-play guy, it, it then makes it a more simple decision maybe in the year 2000 when in reality they might have just gone somewhere else altogether. Thank and, you, Conan O'Brien. Yeah. Year 2000. <laughs> Glad you got that. I'm sure like four other people got that. Um, Trent, did you get that? Nope. Okay. So back when we started this conversation four hours ago, um, <laughs> I mentioned Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin, the voices of Hockey Night in Canada. Yes. And Dal- Danny yes. Gallivan gets his break when an announcer got sick and he filled in. I mean, that's kind of, you, you, find, you, you find this all the time yeah. where that's how it happens. You, it's, it's unforeseen, and that's why it's hard when people, people ask for advice. You know, what yep. should I do to be in your position? I go, I, I say, I'm in, a rich dad. In, in some way, I don't know because I don't know how I got to this position. Yeah. Um, it's nothing, nothing I could have planned for, prepared for. You hope to have some preparation, but 
so many times it's an un, it's an uncertain thing, yeah. and you know, and a lot of it's timing too. Hundred you know? percent. When you say opportunity, I thought, yeah, t- it's it's again. I was timing. really I was yes. really young, and Paul was toward the end, so that there was a timing thing that benefited me. Um, you know, if 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 Paul James was in his early forties. When I got the sideline gig, it's a totally different situation. I'm not yes. doing this now. Yes. So, so it's, it's, it, and that's how it is. Yes. And for those who don't know, I have the same ambition. Like, whenever you're done, I'm hoping I have a shot at being the guy. I'll probably be There's 50. a lot of pressure. See, I feel bad every year I I'll, start another year. No, I'm like, it's another no, year that Jeremy can't no. do this. No, get out of here. <laughs> I'm doing everything around it that I can until it's available when I'm 50 and you're Maybe Don't done. Say it. Like, Maybe not, done. Not and then numbers. I can do it for 15 yeah. years, and then I'm done. <laughs> you know, but no, it's that's that's incredible. Do you have um, like a favorite game or call of yours that was like, oh, that's the one that yeah. I really cherish, or anything like that? Or games, you, no games. Yeah, calls. No, I I just feel like I've, I, there are too many flaws and too many of the calls to really embrace them. You but can't enjoy that. Yeah, you, I I, 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 t- I tend to be a little too critical about the calls themselves because they never quite match the play in my mind. Like the play is always way better than the call. The fans feel otherwise. Yeah, I, and because so, the call so, is attached. Yeah, to the play. so there's the yeah. only saving grace, right? Is you have to remove yourself from it and yeah. say, okay, appreciate the fact that the fans appreciate the call. Yes. Right? Then that helps you. Yeah. But if I just want to look at the call objectively, I find way too many things wrong with them. Um, so the, so then that comes down to the play and the game and how much I love that part of it. So, yeah, you, you know. Do you Beck, have a couple that stick Well, Beck to Hart, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind is of it, cliche, but Beck to Hart Is that the greatest leaves, moment well, I mean, that you've called? Tough to find bigger ones, right? I mean, yeah. if, you're not, if, you're not playing for, if you're not playing for a national championship or, or in a New Year's Day Bowl, like like we call New Year's Day bowls now, yeah. not to di- not to discredit the Cotton Bowl of ninety six ninety seven at all. I'm just saying, unless you're playing in those situations, then you know what could be better than beating your rival on your rival's home field on the final play of the game with zeros on the clock. I mean that that that's like the dream scenario, or any great hail mary like at Nebraska or Boise State. Those kinds of things. Those are tough to beat because of what's on the line for what's on the line, and it's not again it's not the biggest stakes, but there are big stakes, and the fact that. You know, a whole building can shake and reverberate with cheers and emotion. Um, those are special, special moments. And everything Jimmer did that year, right, the special games he had to be a part of that, I found myself getting so carried away and so wrapped up in what he was doing. I was. Those were the moments when I became you know, not, not purely a fan, but I had the fans' energy and the fans' incredulity and the fans' amazement at what this guy was doing. I was having so much fun calling Jimmer's games and shots because I was right with every fan going, this is insane. But you have the responsibility to describe it in a certain way, but you lose yourself in the moment at times. I found myself doing that a lot. But uh, And again, in the biggest, biggest moments, you tend to lose, at least I tend to lose a bit of control of my vocal faculties and I and and you think you've got a handle you think you've got a handle on it and then you don't and it gets a little crazy but again the fans tend to forgive you a little bit uh, it's pretty endearing though yeah because well, you're reacting like the fans yeah, reacting right. to a degree yeah, but you know you, right? you, you you at least I you, know, you think this many years in the business you, you've trained your voice as an instrument and and when you feel it break or kind of get away on you, you're like, how did that just happen? You know, how am I this far into my career and that still happens? But it happens in those moments where everyone's kind of doing the same thing, right? Yes. You're all kind of together in the fact that you're screaming your heads off. You're the only one that can be heard in that medium <laughs> and you're, you're – your uh, emotion comes through your voice. It's yeah. a really and, it's, and that's the thing too moment. is, and no one plans for those moments. And and any any time, any time that I've gotten really loose with it, and it gets kind of crazy, 
you know, I would never have intended that. It just happens. It's a byproduct of the, of the excitement. There's no um, voice crack on terrible plays. It's just the great one. <laughs> Again, I've called yeah, maybe, a lot of plays right? that yeah. totally by the book. Nothing crazy happens, but the wildest yeah. ones tend to tend to bring that out in me, and yeah. it, hap- it happens. Okay, tell me about this. You might be the classiest dresser of all radio guys in the country. Well, no, you dress up. Well, for I, radio ha- I have dressed up. I mean, now, keep in mind for basketball games. Um, football, I tend to do football. I'm in a polo with khakis. I take it all back. Soccer, I'm no, no, just no, 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 no. For football, yes. it's been more uh, the uniform. And I will Match say, no, no, no. Staff. Back in the day, back in the KSL days, I was shirt and tie for football um, and basketball. But when I got in at BYU, I was more like the uniform of the coach, if you will, polo and khakis. Yeah. Uh, basketball until last season with COVID, I was always a suit or shirt and tie. Sorry, dressy yuppie. Yes. Um, soccer, more casual. Baseball, more casual. But basketball was a different thing. It was kind of like I dressed like a coach, if you will. And yes. so last Why year, went, the dressy we went, yuppie? I don't know. I just felt like it was, uh, I don't know, if the coach was going to look like that, I felt like I should look like that. I just yeah. kind of took my cues that way. And I felt a lot of guys did it. And I felt it kind of showed a dedication to the professionalism of it that you dress up a little bit. Then COVID came and we all kind of dressed down, and that might be a remnant. That might stay with us. I don't know. Uh, but I think nowadays I'd be a, I, I could be a little less stringent with the dress code and feel okay about things, but I still want to look professional. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of my thing. I did, I did do a lot of shirt and tie stuff. I ask you this very often, how much to do X? So, like, how much to wear flip-flops to a men's basketball game next year? How much could I pay you? <laughs> and, and, by the way, and, and money has never changed hands with these propositions. <laughs> you've never actually accepted one. <laughs> no. like, how much to say this? Yeah. Um, if I paid you $500, would you wear flip-flops to a men's basketball game? Uh, slides with socks. I would do that. With so- You're yeah, with socks yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I have to. I, I can't go purely barefoot to a basketball game. Oh, you can't? No, I couldn't do that. Okay, so without so- some measure of without socks, five hundred bucks, would you do it? Slides with dress socks, yeah. Some classy slides, so like black, some like some like Nike black slides with black dress socks it makes it look like I'm regular shoes, yeah. <laughs> like a yeah. regular Joe. Yeah, I've never taken Jerem's dares, by the way. Okay, you uh, so off the uh, out of the booth, uh, away from the mic, uh, you like to run. You, 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 when you go on the road, you're in the WCC at Malibu or whatever, you're taking pics, hey, when are Yeah, run. I run. What kind of runner are you? How much uh, do you run? I, I, I run a half marathon a year every summer just to train for something. Um, I'm running a 10K as well this summer with my daughter because she asked me to on the spur of the moment. So I'm going to run a race or two every summer. That's awesome. Um, and I do it as a, as a health maintenance thing. Um, I find that during the fall and winter, when you're on the road the whole season, you eat a lot away from home, a lot of restaurants and whatnot. You tend to put on more pounds. It's colder. You're more sedentary. So in the spring and summer, then I try to lose those pounds and I do it by running. So yeah, I like running. Um, but there are days when you don't like running and it takes you a mile until you start liking to run again sometimes. Um, but it keeps me fit. I think I'm still decently fit. Um, I, I, I can still stand to lose 10 to 15 pounds at any point in the year, I feel like. But uh, I do run frequently. I'm not fast, but I'm fast enough. Um, I'm still knocking my half marathons out in, you know, 150 or less usually. So, nice. um, you know, I'm not that slow yet. So You don't really eat lunch. I'm not a big lunch guy. I invite you to lunch often. You <laughs> I, politely say no. I say no all the time. Yeah. I'm not a big lunch guy. Not a big breakfast guy or lunch guy. I'm a you snacker. Just, you just and don't a, really eat. I'm a snacker and a dinner guy. You're a snacker and a dinner I still guy. Believe me, I still gain enough weight. I'm not like starving myself. I gain enough weight. I just yeah. do it in really bad ways with snacks and soda and, and, and big meals at dinner time. 
Do you have? Do you go to the same restaurants in the same road cities of men's basketball? Games? Yeah, I'm kind of a creature. I, I I'm not very I'm, exciting. No, so I know there, you there, love there, Outback Steakhouse. Yes, I've been I do. To Outback with you. Yes, I do. I've got my items. I, there are certain things. There are Bush, certain, what is it? Bushman. The Bushman shrooms. shrooms. Now, sometimes I think they're they're now, they're now called the Sydney shrooms, and sometimes they're not even on the menu. But if oh, they're yeah. not, but if they're not on the menu. Ask for them anyway. They'll yes. make them for you. I felt special. I when, found that out. Yes, yes. I felt fact, special I, I, when I was fact, with you. In fact, I think this. the reason they returned to the menu is because I kept asking for them in all these cities that, that <laughs> it like, went dude, off the menu. In like nine cities, yeah. they've asked for it. No, it's the same guy. So yeah, I'm, there are a lot of broadcasters, and I, I, you know, there are guys on Twitter that have eighteen awesome restaurants for every city, and they're all, you know, hole in the wall and under the all radar. The baseball guys, yeah, right? So <laughs> there are guys that know all the best, coolest. No one knows about places Triple to go, D. and I'm the guy that goes no Outback, you know. So I I <laughs> I just I like what I like, and I get what I get, and and I do have my regulars. Yeah, not that I won't go off the beaten path, but right. I but I can't give you great off the beaten path places. I just tend to kind of stick close to the norm. Where do you go in Spokane? Uh, Spokane, I go to the Onion. The Onion, Down, yeah, the Onion downtown. We went to yeah. after BYU won its first game in Spokane or the Outback. <laughs> I, we went also up there. The I don't even remember where we were, but I, I ate dinner with you and Mark after BYU beat Gonzaga for the first time. What, 2014? Yeah, that, that could have been the steakhouse in the hotel, I That's think. That's one it, of the best steaks yeah. I'd ever had in my life. Yeah, no, it, it was, it in was the, incredible. It was in the old Doubletree uh, in Spokane. Gotcha. It might have been Spencer's. Spencer's sound right? Linton's, yeah. No, uh, exactly. it, 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 yeah. I mean, so, so there, there are some things yeah. that are just because a matter of convenience. If there's a good steakhouse in the hotel, I'll go there. Nice. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, clearly we love the Roots Chris's of the world and things like that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Do you I'm have not super, too exciting. Are you a superstitious broadcaster? Uh, I, I, I tend to... I tend to lean away from superstition um, because I because I honestly do believe that jinxes don't exist. So I don't want to because you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You can't say jinxes don't exist, but I have to wear this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I won't mention this yeah. free throw so, streak. So I don't. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have superstitions as much as I have routine. I think I have a lot of routines. That and just, poutine. That, that, yeah, I love the poutine. Um, by the way, I never knew it was called poutine till I came down here. Like up in up What's in Canada, it oh, chips and gravy. Chips and gravy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because chips are fries, and anyway. Yeah. So chips and gravy. Um, so I probably had more 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 French fries with gravy than I had ketchup growing up. That Love is, it. Yeah, that anyway. is a Canadian thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I digress. Uh, so I have routines that bring me comfort in my in in getting ready for a game. So those things aren't truly superstitious as much as they put me in a good place. You drive a certain route, or you leave at a certain time. You're saying um, these are things, and you do yeah, or you do things at certain times of your day. Yes. So I, I have routines, but I wouldn't call them superstitions as much as they just kind of put me in a comfort zone to call a game well. How early? Let's talk football because it's longer. When do you okay? When do you it's a it's a eight twenty six kickoff. When do you leave your house? When do you get to the stadium? When are you on the air? When are you going home? Because yeah. this is like a long day for you. Yeah, I I I, I tend to go three hours before kick to leave. Yeah. So you're leaving at five or, or 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 three and a half depending on yeah. quarter past or what have you. Yeah. But um, yeah, I want to give myself at least it'll be three plus hours when I leave uh, the house. Because we're, we're, okay. we're going to be on the air two hours before, and then yes. my personal part comes a little bit later than that. So I give myself yes. enough 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 advance time. And you start what is it an hour before, thirty minutes before? Uh, well, I'll interview Kalani an hour before, so I need to make sure I'm in position for that. Before you're on the air. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll interview Kalani ninety minutes before. Then I do a brief hit an hour before, and then I do my full pregame show half hour before. So, so I need I, I need to be in position with Kalani ninety minutes before kick. 
Average for our pregame interview. Average game is three and a half hours. Yeah. So when the game ends, you've been engaged. Oh, day long. Yeah. I've, all day, but like five hours from when you interviewed Kalani. Plus you do like a two-hour postgame Yeah, game. right. Seven hours. I, I, I look at a game day as an eight-hour production. Like, and, and our broadcast like will last. like a full last, day of work for the average Our person. broadcast will last seven to eight hours. And I'll get there before and stay after. So it's 10 hours, you know, by the time you've taken all that in. And then you're going to, you know, if, you, if, if there's time, you'll go find a meal and eat with your guys. And, and so it's a day-long thing. That's a long time. Yeah. and in this, and, and, and in this, Oh, yeah. The, in, in, this, like in this business, you know, it's never been a five-day-a-week gig. It's a six- and seven-day-a-week gig. Yeah. But that's why you get into it for that. Like, no one complains about the fact that, oh, Saturday, every Saturday is a game day. No, that's why you're in this thing. But a traditional get to Friday, hey, it's the weekend. That doesn't exist <laughs> from August through March. Yes. Or not from August through April into May. Now it's baseball. So from You've August through May. To you keep adding things. Yeah, so from August through May, <laughs> Saturday is never, hey, it's always a game day. Every yep. Saturday is a game day. So your Fridays are just prepping for games, not, oh, the weekend's here. Uh, but again, no complaints. That's why we do this. Um, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things that becomes your life. Doing a post-game show of that length and in basketball even in some remote spots where they're trying to clean up or mm-hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah. You've had all kinds of situations. Oh, Any yeah. stick out in terms of uh, chairs banging, power going out, lights shutting off? Yeah, well – we, we've been asked to leave venues before, and, and we try and reason with them. No, we have an audience that's with us here for another 45 minutes to an hour. Like, we can't leave. We're on the air. You get to a lot of schools where their crews do five minutes of post game and they're done, and they think everyone else should be the same way. So we were at venues last year, especially with COVID. They were really more sensitive with COVID last year. They wanted you in and out in a hurry, and we're not really a hurry show. We're kind of a take-your-time kind of show, and, and it's a longer broadcast. So you have people that want you to leave. You've had people that, that, that mistakenly, some, I'll say one or two times it's been intentional, turn the power off on you or unplug you. <laughs> That's happened before. That happens. That happens. So I'll say once or twice a year for basketball, someone or, for, or soccer, someone's going to unplug you. Oh, wow. Just because they'll, they'll be breaking stuff down. They're just yanking stuff. And yep. someone yanks yep. something that has you on the air. Yep. And, and it's usually 99% unintentional. Like, uh-oh, you know, what just happened? Oh, sorry, we'll fix it. Um, but, yeah, the cleanup crews, there are certain stadiums we've talked about. Uh, War Memorial Gymnasium in, in San Francisco, where they want to put the seats down after the uh, after the game. These rows We're of seats. We're now talking to Margo. Yeah, rows <laughs> of seats go slamming down for the next twenty minutes, and you hear that. <laughs> so those things kind of things happen, and you occasionally, occasionally have you know phone lines that die in the old days. Phone lines that die, um, gear that's you know got you know or I mean going. <laughs> remember the Jackson Emery Jimmer Fredette game at UNLV, where Jimmer shot from the logo and yep. that game. Yep. That game I did on uh, Russian-era Soviet-style headsets that were borrowed from a station in Las Vegas because someone took my broadcast gear off the carousel at McCarran. Oh! Yeah. Delta sent us to the wrong baggage carousel, so I was waiting at the wrong carousel. My gear ended up in another carousel, and someone was pulling off Pelican cases just by the dozen, and mine looked like someone else's, and it got taken. I didn't see it again for two weeks. And so I had a game the next night, that UNLV-BYU game, I did it with borrowed gear. And again, it was like it was like it was it was the worst gear you could buy. It was like pulled out of a garage sale type stuff. Morse and, code during uh, it was it was hard. Yeah, so you have things like that that happen. And then literally, the crew that pulled my gear kept it for ten days. And then when they left Vegas, they were there for the Consumer Electronics. And they let, they did they just returned it to Delta, saying we had this extra case. And Delta tracked it to me and got it, got it back to me. But I was I was doing gear with I was doing two weeks with extra gear. Um, for that reason. So that, that kind of stuff happens. So, th- so that way, I mean, now when I travel for basketball and soccer and baseball with my broadcast case, like, I have to leave my site to get checked on the airplane, but I, like, camp myself 
at the bottom of the conveyor belt. Like I want to be the first guy to see every piece of luggage come off because I'm never have that happen again. <laughs> I'm manic about that. I have to oh, get man. my hands on my gear ASAP because I mean, I've had people take it. If you got to the end of this, which <laughs> there's going to be people, tweet at me and tell me. No, tell don't me, do that. tell me, tell me the following. Just tweet at me the following word. Muskrat. No. <laughs> Muskrat. And then I'll know. No. No one's going to get there. <laughs> Muskrat. No, this just is tweet us. at me, at Jerem Jordan, at Greg Bell. Muskrat. Then this, we'll know. This is okay. us just chatting for Greg, each other. this was awesome. I'm serious. We'll have to do this another time <laughs> because uh, my wife's probably like, Why, where are you? But anyway, uh, thanks so much for sitting down with me and chatting here. And uh, I know that you mean a ton to BYU fans. They love Greg Bell, the voice of the Cougars. It's been so fun for me to work with you these past several years and, and have you write me letters of recommendation and just be so nice to me. Now it's fun to like be your colleague yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm, as a broadcaster. That's really fun for me. I, I'm beyond blessed to have this job. I know how fortunate I am and I'm blessed to work with you, be your friend and have our close relationship as well. And um, maybe we'll do this again. Maybe there'll be we, more. We're doing it again. <laughs> and, and quick story before we end. So I marry Whitney in uh, 2011 and I invite you to my reception. And you come to my reception. Yeah, I and did. you sit down at a table. Yeah. And my uncle Chris and my <laughs> uncle Connell are there. And they are like buzzed with excitement because the voice of the cougar just sat down at their table. And they chat with you and you couldn't have been nicer. And so I couldn't have missed that. It was that. like one of the highlights of their lives. Oh, they yeah, love it. They're like, Greg, Greg. And every time a season ends, my uncle Craig texts me and goes, Greg just signed off the end of football, and a little tear came down my face like it does every year this time <laughs> that it's over. I joked at the beginning of this conversation, again, hours ago, <laughs> that, uh, that that you know, that I, I work for you. And, and that's, of course, in reference to the fact that for the last few seasons here at BYU Broadcasting, you were running the coaches show that I host. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as the showrunner, you got to, you know, uh, lay out your vision and hopefully, hopefully have me execute it. So um, I've been I've been fortunate to work with you that way and, and learn from you and your crew and hopefully do a good enough job for you in the audience. So it's been fun to, to again, ha- kind of have it come full circle and, yeah. and work with you that way. And again, your role will change this year. Um, your fingerprints are still all over the coaches shows and hopefully we'll do a good job for you uh, this season. Thank you. I had enough, so I'm done. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Forced you out. Yeah, I'm, I'm enough. No, Greg, yeah. this was awesome. We will do part two in the future. I okay. don't know when, but we're going to do it because I have a <laughs> make, million other questions. Give the audience you. a break for a yes. while. Let them just fully digest all this. At Jerem Jordan, at Greg Rubel, <laughs> Muskrat. <laughs> That'll do it for us. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can always download uh, episodes on demand, the BYU Radio app where podcasts are found. For Greg Rubel, right. I am Jerem Jordan. You've just listened to Deep Blue on BYU Radio.